This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Sharmila Sen, executive editor of the Harvard University Press, discusses her recent book about growing up as an immigrant in America with CIIS professor Jyothi Rao. This event was recorded on September 20, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco as part of the Haresh and Joan Shah Lecture and Performance Series. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. In your book, um, you first use the phrase when discussing the colonial phenomenon of going native, in, in which white Europeans began to take on the trappings of cultures and countries such as India or Turkey. You write, when an Englishman went native in India in the 18th century, he was disguising himself as someone who was not white. The power that Englishmen that Englishman derived from that disguise lay in the fact that he was not quite not white. Tell us more about what not quite not white means to you. Uh, first of all, thank you for um, inviting me to this conversation and it's very nice to see all of you here. Um, I look forward to uh, conversing with some of you directly, hopefully after my conversation with Jyoti's over. Um, I'll get into the title in a second, but let me tell you about that section that you um, just uh, quoted. It's uh, from a chapter, if I remember correctly, called Autobiography of an Ex-Indian Woman. And for those of you who think that's a kind of a funny chapter title, that's actually a riff on a really famous African-American novel by a writer who precedes the Harlem Renaissance, uh, James Weldon Johnson, and the novel was called Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. So. Um, that's what I was, you know, and that's a novel of passing. So um, in many ways, I wanted to weave in the very American concept of passing into this. But passing, as we know, in the US is, of course, when a person who was black was passing as white, right? Um, going native, and particularly in the colonial context, so the section that Jyoti just spoke about is not quite the opposite of passing. And you'll see, you know, I'll use this term not quite a lot because I'm trying to kind of point out some of the, uh, these are false analogies, right? So the opposite of passing is never going native. So when a white person is pretending to be an Arab, like Lawrence of Arabia, or when uh, a number of, uh, uh, say, Brits during the era of uh, the British Raj in India, you know, would wear a turban or wear Indian garb, learn the languages, eat the food, sometimes have native mistresses in the black part of town. Um, and they took pride in, you know, going native. That's, of course, not the same thing as what passing was in the United States, because the power stakes are entirely different, right? that there, the powerful colonizer was going native 
and derived power from that. And the fact is they could always return back. In fact, I write about that. that the power, that's why I said that thing, that they took great pleasure. When you look at these old photos, I don't know if any of you have seen old photos of the real Lawrence of Arabia. And you know, part of the pleasure is that you know he's not an Arab. And um, it's, it's a kind of almost a form of racial drag, if you will, you know, that awareness that there's something else. You know, so I said, they took pleasure in looking not white, but they derived power from being not quite not white. Um, of course, then in the case of the book and why I gave this title, uh, there's a, there's a really nerdy answer to this, and the nerdy answer is actually, it's a phrase that comes from a book that I read long time ago, you know, in the early 90s when I was just beginning graduate work and written by a very famous post-colonial theorist, Karl Homi Baba, and where he talks about this concept of, of, of mimicry and being not quite not white. But I'll put it in a, in a kind of a less nerdy way and say a lot of this book I talk about just the idea of not quiteness, right? That you're never, you're trying to be something or you're trying to, you know, attain something, whether it be, you know, a certain kind of class position or, uh, you know, certain kind of racial identity, getting so far, but then no, right? And that how that kind of suits everybody, you know, and that's actually also what the dominant culture in the U.S. actually quite likes, because when you're trying to act white, particular kind of, of course, middle or upper middle class white, that I think it's, it's very, it's flattering. But the fact that you'll ne never quite be that is safety. So the act of imitation is flattering to those imitation whom we imitate. Safety, mimicry mm -hmm. is, imitation is flattery, mm -hmm. mimicry is flattery. But never quite actually, but knowing that there is a line exists mm -hmm. beyond which that's safety mm -hmm. for the dominant class. Mm -hmm. So it's inviting a sort of imitation while always knowing that the imitation can never fully succeed. Yeah, that you can't be supplanted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You had your own experiments with passing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, let's not talk in the past tense, probably still continuing. Uh, um, well, I should, I mean, say this by saying it. So it's, I mean, when we were talking about passing, I think it's a very... It's a quintessentially, you know, it's an American phenomenon. cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. There are similar things that happen in different places in the world. But when we speak of it in English using that word, it has its history, right, in this country. And the history, of course, has to do based in the history of race in this country and the history of slavery in this country, right? Um, and in my own case, I mean, some of it is just, you know, look, it's accident of birth, you know. Um, India is a country with a phenomenal um, genetic diversity, right? I think second only to the continent of Africa. So you see incredible range of phenotypes in India, sometimes even within one family, right? Um, I just, you know, through, as I said, through just an accident, you know, I happen to have very light skin. So um, I could pass, right? My husband, who's also of Indian origin, he didn't grow up in India, cannot because his skin is brown enough that even though he's actually lived in the West far longer than I have, he will never pass, right? My children who are browner and have, are native born 
cannot pass, you know, are probably asked more frequently. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? That there are kids born in Boston, but they might be asked, where are you really from? Whereas I have, you know, I mean, I, I have been considered everything from a Sephardic Jew to, a, to being, you know, a Mexican to Turk, Arab, the whole thing, you know. Um, and this just had to do, and I realized when I was young enough that I could, that people often didn't think I was Indian until I told them my name. Um, and that allowed me to blend in. You know, I just wanted to be invisible in some ways. A lot of young kids, young immigrants, you know, you don't want to stand out. That's how it started. Mm -hmm. That you, you just don't want to stand out as the foreign kid, as the different kid, you know. It's, it's not cool or exotic when you come at 12, right? So it's a form of wanting to blend into something and that something, you know, was a particular kind of whiteness. Yeah. So the not white identity that you're looking to claim at this point has something to do with this tension between mimicry, passing, not quiteness. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not claiming it. I've always known that I was not white. I, I don't think I was confused in the U.S. Um, what I do write about in the book is I didn't think in terms of race until I came to this country because I grew up in a country where race was not a category that we used for internal divisions. We had a lot of other categories, don't get me wrong. You know, all, pop, all societies have ways of dividing themselves, right? Of classifying themselves and then little ways in which people try to sneak past those lines. So, the society in which I grew up, you know, those categories were religion, caste, ethnicity, language, right? And of course, economic class, right? Um, but but race not race, was, right? Not race, and, mm -hmm. and, and that's not just even a cultural phenomenon. Actually, I, when I was, you know, researching this book, I found out there's a reason, you know, why I, growing up in the 70s, it was not part of my social or cultural vocabulary because it was not part of our legal vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Since uh, independence, since the first census was taken in India in 1951, race has not been used as a category. So, so the modern independent state of India very consciously Right, the founding fathers, the, the, the man who wrote the constitution, Ambedkar, you know, they wanted to make sure that race was not a category on the census. So we hadn't actually used it even in that official sense. So no wonder a child like me, born, you know, good 25 years after independence, would not grow up with that. So for me, that was a discovery. <laughs> coming here, and I also, because I immigrated before the age of internet and social media, we could really come for the first time to a place back then, you know? Mm -hmm. Things were new in a way. I think it's hard for them to, new, to be new these days. That was a discovery. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, big difference from the place you imagined going and the place you found yourself in. Yes, and I think also, I mean, I think I had very, very spotty imagination. I mean, my, my imagination of what this place would be like was based on a few Hollywood films and some literature I read, you know, as a kid. Um, I, I wasn't, you know, Googling this place because we couldn't again, you know, so that was all I had. I'd never left my country before that. I'd never left the continent of Asia 
before that, before I came. So, um, yeah, so I think race was a discovery here. And, and then how we talked about it, you know, because I, I discovered race not just through America, but through the English language. That's also, I think, a very important factor is, is you know, these uh, words, I mean, you know, it just seems like such a simple word, the word white. It's a color, it's, maybe it's a racial category. Um, but there, there is no exact equivalent of it in a lot of other languages, including in languages that I grew up with. So I think that, you know, language also matters in the way we talk about things and the way we experience things. Yeah. We'll come back to talking about a little bit more about language. You have a lot to say on the topic. That's, that's very interesting. Um, so you write about the paradox that's often present in immigrant families. On the one hand, there's a giant risk that's been taken. On the other hand, as you write, immigrant families can often be very risk averse and very cautious, particularly economically. Um, and I'm wondering if you might read us the section in your book about how economic challenges and opportunities shaped your family's immigration story. Sure. Um, so this is a, a section in the book where I talk about my early days. This is the early 1980s. And for anyone who has been an immigrant or a child immigrant, they, I think this is a question that, uh, that you'll see in the section I'll read to you that they're faced at some point or probably repeatedly throughout their entire time here, which is, why did your family come here? Right? And it's a very simple question, but it has you know, certain kinds of, you know, I think, very serious uh, ramifications and meanings. We waited for almost three years in India for our visas because Baba was too nervous to emigrate without a green card. We were making a historic leap from one continent to another, yet we were an extremely risk-averse family. Many immigrants carry these twin traits within themselves and some even pass them on to the next generation. As risk-takers, we leap far from the safety of home. Having left the comforts of home, we know all too well that there is no safety net of kinship or citizenship to catch us should we topple. This makes us cautious. We check the lock on the door three times before going out. We save more than we spend. We collect sugar and ketchup packets from McDonald's and cannot throw anything away. At work, we beat every deadline in the office and never pass up a second gig to make extra money. We tell our children to keep their heads down, study hard, and always look for a bargain. As risk-averse immigrants, we do not rock the boat. If, we, if you were a trapeze artist without a net below you, wouldn't you be the same way? Anything else would be irrational. Scholars who study immigrants, such as Baba and Ma, would describe them as the classic example of homo economicus, economic man, makes rational decisions that will increase his wealth and his ability to buy nice things. In those early days in America, whenever people asked why my parents immigrated, I felt a sense of irritation and embarrassment. I could not say that we were fleeing war or political turmoil. We were not exiles seeking political or religious freedom. We were seeking economic gains. We were seeking more money. That 
is a humiliating thing for a 12-year-old girl to have to repeat in a schoolyard. My parents sounded greedy. Or worse, they sounded like people who had failed to be successful in the country of their birth and sought a second chance in a richer country. Because I arrived with them, I feared I too was tainted by these labels, greedy, unsuccessful, homo economicus. At 12, I had made no rational choice, but the accident of birth made me homo economicus all the same. I wish we could pretend to be expats. Expats are glamorous and cosmopolitan. Cool expats like Ernest Hemingway sip Bellinis in Harry's Bar in Venice. Modern expats are the well-heeled white Europeans or Americans one encounters in cities such as Dubai, Singapore, or Shanghai. They're foreigners who have moved to distant shores for all the same reasons as a humble immigrant, higher wages, more job opportunities, greater purchasing power, and faster upward mobility. White expats often hold themselves apart from natives in the Middle East, Africa, or Asia, seeing themselves as superior. They send their children to the local American, British, French, or German school. They go to restaurants and shops frequented by others who share their tastes. They have their own clubs. In the West, we do not begrudge white expats their seclusion. New immigrants in America, by contrast, are perceived as undesirables who bring down the real estate value of a neighborhood. The women wear strange garb, their ill-mannered children run amok, and their grocery stores emit unpleasant odors. Meanwhile, white expats add value to their surroundings. Shanghai's French concession is chic because of the presence of white folk. European expats add glamour to the high-end restaurants of Abu Dhabi. We weren't chic expats or political dissidents with lofty ideologies. We were three people moving from a country with fewer resources to one with greater resources. I doubted we added glamour or value to our surroundings. Why did your parents come to America? For better jobs. To this day, this small exchange, repeated endlessly throughout my years in the United States, instantly determines the social hierarchy between my interlocutor and me. I wish I could say my parents possessed some extraordinary professional skill for which an American institution wooed them. We did not hold noble, noble political or religious convictions that were at odds with the government of India. There was no war raging in my city, and we were not being resettled. Homo economicus has a duller, more prosaic story to tell. Why did your parents come to America? For better jobs. The native-borns nod and feel pleased that they're the citizens of a country that offers better everything. Jobs, homes, clothes, food, schools, music, I would feel the same if I was in their shoes. It must feel good to be born in a country that has more wealth than other places, to have the hardest currency in your wallet. It must feel good to be generous and invite others, after intense vetting and pre-selection, to share in this plenty. Even though I had no say at all in my family's decision to emigrate, I felt my shoulders weighed down with the plenitude of the host country. This plenitude, of which I was to be the grateful recipient, was evidence that white people were superior to people like me. How else could one nation be so wealthy and another be so poor? One country have so much to give and another stand in a queue to receive. 
The inequality of nations was surely a sign that some races were morally, physically, and intellectually superior to others. The inequality of nations surely had nothing to do with man, but was shaped by providence. Why did your parents come to America? For better jobs. Thank you. There's so much of an awareness of fundamental inequality that you're grappling with in this section as a young person coming into the social milieu. And there are forms of inequality that you're used to negotiating in India, and then there are new forms of inequality that you're trying to kind of contend with. Um, you know, one of the things that occurs to me in your reading is that there's this feeling that it, there isn't a valid reason. You know, the reason that your family had for immigrating is, is not quite to use your term, not quite valid. It's not quite up to snuff. At the same time, right now we see many refugee communities also being considered not valid in their reasons for coming, you know, having their reasons invalidated. So it kind of begs the question for me, are there any reasons that are considered quite valid enough? I, th I, I will answer it in this way. I think, you know, the section that I read, obviously, you know, there's, yes, you're right. There are, of course, inequalities within a country. There are, you know, inequalities within the citizenry of a country. If in the United States, in the last two, three years or so, economic inequality has become a very hot topic, you know. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, you know, it was a deeply unsexy topic among economists since the 1960s. And I think it's after the recession of 2008, it's, it's uh, you know, a, a terribly uh, important topic. And it's, but this, it's also voguish, right? So it's, uh, uh, I think I've always thought, would Thomas Piketty's book on, you know, capital, which makes a very important argument about economic inequality, how, would it have been received with the same fanfare in the US if it was the 1980s, right? But we're still talking about, first of all, economic inequality within a country. And I think that you know, one of the other things I was trying to understand, but I mean, I'm, I'm feeling all this at this point you know, that I'm writing, I'm 12 years old, so I have this kind of clumsy shrewdness of a child, but that's about it, is the inequality of nations. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is something very different from inequality within a country. I still think even in this country, while there's a lot of people, even progressive people, who are so deeply in, invested in, in you know, somehow rectifying deep economic inequality within the US, the very same people would have very different positions about inequality of nations, which is a different topic, right? Um, but so I'm, I'm grappling here with, you know, when you, because that's what, in, you know, international migration brings up. It's both inequality within and it's a global inequality of nations, right? Um, but the other, the question you asked me is sort of what seems more valid? And I think that, you know, hidden within that is that language of voluntary and involuntary migration, which is such a difficult thing. I mean, every human rights lawyer I know would tell me that it's incredibly difficult to parse the difference between voluntary and involuntary migration. But there, I mean, there are policies 
and laws built around that, or there's sort of social norms around that, right? So an economic immigrant, which is what, you know, I'm sort of kind of playing with that idea, the classic idea of homo economicus, right? That's, a, that's an economist term for economic man. And it, that's supposed to be voluntary, right? That's voluntary migration, when you come from one place to another for what? Better jobs, more purchasing power. Um, there are other kinds of migration that are involuntary, and I think sometimes we have kind of placed greater moral value to the involuntary kind. And the voluntary kind, the economic kind, is sort of, mm, you know, a little less um, noble, if you will. Um, but I mean, you know what I'm playing with, the reason I brought up that idea of the inequality of nations is, is I want to question that, is how voluntary is the category of voluntary economic migrations if we don't think about how inequality of nations, why some nations are resource rich and others are resource poor, how that came about. Uh, you know, is a god, is a man. It does occur to me that there is this idea um, packed into this dialogue about voluntary and voluntary of validity. You know, when is what is a good enough reason? Um, and it just seems to me that currently there doesn't seem to be any good enough reason to justify somebody immigrating in discourse, even though in reality, of course, there are pressing reasons, including, you know, those that might be called involuntary as well as supposedly voluntary economic migration. You might be right. I think at least in, in my time in the U.S. And, you know, whenever I say this, by the way, this phrase, my time in the U.S., you'll notice I'm very hesitant. And I, I sort of, I still find myself, I'm learning things about this country. I've spent 35 years living here. Um, but, so I, I kind of say I'm, I'm not an Insta expert, but jokingly, as I told you earlier, I'm an old America hand, as once upon a time there were old China hands and old India hands. So I'm an old America hand. I've, I've spent 35 years studying the natives and um, perhaps even befriending a few. I'm just joking, of course. <laughs> Learning their language, eating their food. Um, in, in my time here, it's possibly... Yes, of course, it's, it's one of the most kind of unfriendly environments for immigration, for certain. Um, I hesitate to say this is the worst it's ever been in the history of this nation, because US history tells me something else, because we, we know what the 19th century saw, and we, saw, we know what the early 20th century saw. I come and I can see some of you around the room. I mean, many of, you, many of you here, myself, you or your parents, we come from parts of the world that were barred. We were part of the barred zone, you know? The Chinese Exclusion Act led to, you know, these kinds of barred Asian zones. I also know, for instance, uh, naturalization, which is the process by which an, an, an immigrant becomes a citizen was not available for non-whites until the 1950s, from 1790 to up to the 1950s. You know, naturalization was, so that path to citizenship 
didn't exist. So while, of course, as I'm saying, yes, it's a particularly unfriendly environment, I think I'd also be um, not doing justice to the history of this country if, I, if we don't note that, you know, that certainly there, there were in certain ways that the past had some, some even worse instances and certain gains have been made and, and we can't forget that or we have to teach our children that. You know, we certainly don't want to go back to the barred zone or, or to those things where, you know, naturalization is not available. But having said that, as a naturalized citizen, which is what I am, every naturalized citizen, by the way, in any country in the world knows one thing, what can be given can be taken away. And for those of you who are naturalized citizen, look at, study the, you know, the INS laws. Um, I've done, I've actually published some books on this and the ways in which the Vichy regime in France took away the citizenship of naturalized Jews right, you know, and Jews who were naturalized as French citizens 20 years later, right before the Holocaust, their citizenship was revoked by the same judges and they could be shipped out. And, and, and therefore, for until now, historians couldn't ever properly take count of how many French citizens died in concentration camps. And you know why? Because they didn't count as French citizens anymore once their citizenship was taken away, right? So the archives themselves. And when I, when I was working on that book, I know I was thinking of that and I looked up the laws here and I knew that there are laws right now that my citizenship can be taken from me. And through it, people who gained citizenship through me. So if someone has sponsored a parent or a child, that, that their citizenship also that becomes, comes into jeopardy, right? These are things I think people who are native-born citizens for whom very different laws apply need not think about because they need not worry about it. I mean, these, by the way, this has nothing to do with the present climate. This, this has to do with the laws. Um, and immigration laws, right? So I think um, while, of course, it's a great stride that, you know, naturalization was available to non-whites by the 1950s, um, that itself, it's still a category that one can't take, get too comfortable with, right? Yeah, it's so precarious being in this position of having been granted a gift of sorts that can be revoked at any time. Yeah, and then and, and, and this, I mean, I have to, again, you know, it's a little bit of international context is important. Um, this is true, by the way, for most countries that allow naturalized citizenship, right? It, and yes, the point is it, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of precarity that those who get citizenship in countries through birth don't have to think about. Yeah. All the time. It's an interesting yeah. word in and of itself, naturalize. Yes. yes, yes, of course, think about it, you know, what it means to be naturalized. Um, it's also, I mean, and it's been in the news lately, right? And, and a lot of people have been talking about this, that, you know, the revocation of the citizenship of naturalized citizens is kind of coming back into question. Because for a while, you know, I mean, there was a sense Okay, you know, if you have a green card, that's a certain kind of security. Oh, if you have a citizenship, that's another kind of security. But, but it's, it's never that kind of, you know, it's, it's never sort of pure safety. And, and that's another thing I talked, you know, when I said, when you, when, you, when you emigrate, when you leave the country of your birth, you know, you are 
in a way, you're, you're taking an enormous risk, a personal risk, but a historic risk, because you are leaving behind what I said, the safety net of kinship and citizenship in some fundamental way, right? And I know I left it behind. And by the way, when I became an, it, I waited for a long time. And that just has to do with the country where, of which I was a citizen, India, doesn't allow dual citizenship. So I had to surrender that. I had to give up that citizenship in order to get this citizenship in the US. That means if my US citizenship is ever revoked, I don't have another passport. And it's very unlikely that I can just sort of walk back uh, because it's in any, and this is not just, has nothing to do with India, by the way. Any country whose citizenship you have voluntarily surrendered or given up is extremely suspicious of granting it back. I know this from native-born Americans who for various reasons have actually surrendered their US citizenship and later <laughs> wanted to regain that. It's a very complicated process. What a bind. It's, it's a... <laughs> I mean it's a bind, mm -hmm. right? Naturalization yes. can be given and revoked, and yes. citizenship must be given up but can not be regained so easily. True, true. Yet all this we're talking about, you know, is... I still think that, you know, my grandparents' generation, my parents were born in a country... In not, they weren't born in, in an independent country. They were born in the colonies, right? They were born in India that was part of the British Empire. Your parents were too, probably. My grandparents were too. So uh, this is another thing I do know, that um, even this discussion we're having, the possibility that I can have citizenship, that's a stride too. Mm -hmm. Just two generations ago, we were subjects. We were not citizens. We were subjects of an empire. We were not citizens of an independent nation. So I'm also very aware of that, that this whole by, and which is, by the way, it took me so long to give up my Indian citizenship because my grandparents' generation had fought to become citizens from subjects, right? Um, but I know that too, that, you know, in, in the space of 70 years, we made that stride that we could be actual citizens of some place. That's not a small thing either. So let's talk about food. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, what role did food play in your early life as a teenager and young adult in the US? Um. You write quite a lot about it. Sure. Um, well, I mean, um, I think for anyone who moves from one continent to another, one place to another. As I said, you know, you, you don't just immigrate from one country to another, you immigrate from one language into another. And from one culinary world to the other, right? So I had to not just train my tongue to speak in a particular way, or my body to behave in a certain way or carry oneself. I had to train my palate to appreciate new tastes different tastes, you know? Me, like thousands of people before me, right? Um, so yes, learning to be American is, was as much about learning to talk American and also eat American, right? Yeah. Yeah, so what did that look like for you? Ah, well... <laughs> or what did it taste like? What did it taste like? Uh, well, not always easy. I mean, there, there are things, of course, one 
loves. Um, um, I think that I was, so, well, again, I think the context here is, is important and has to do with my age and when I came to this country. I came from India before liberalization, right? So this was before globalization. It was properly third world country. We didn't have global chains. There was no McDonald's, any of that. Uh, Mrs. Gandhi, who was the prime minister of the country through much of my childhood because of our kind of quasi-socialist protected economy had kicked out most of the global chains, so there was no Coca-Cola and things like that in the India that I grew up in, let alone McDonald's and KFC and all that. Um, I'm saying this because I think anyone who immigrated from India or any part of the subcontinent from the 1990s onward, when the H-1B visas started being used, you know, the, their palates had to undergo some changes too, but they were already exposed to all the American chains because, because the kind of opening up of the economy and India becoming a market, a consumer market, meant all these global chains could just get in there, right? Sort of the whole prepackaged, the joys of American fast food and processed food <laughs> were freely available to people in India in the 1990s, unlike for those of us in the 70s. So yeah, I, I mean, I had pizza for the first time when I came here. I still remember the taste of oregano. That was a new spice. I mean, you said I you mean, weren't too into it. No, I mean, I was. To I mean, yeah, exactly. Isn't that weird? For an, I mean, you know, you this the cliche. You know, I'm Indian. I'm supposed to have like this kind of wild assortment of spices always at the ready. I do, but oregano. <laughs> That one, I just distinctly remember, you know, these new flavors and tastes. I remember, um, uh, I mean, also the canned sodas, completely. I mean, I'd, of course, I'd, I'd had sodas, but the can, I had them in bottles, so the can was new, the little pop can, and the serving size. Um, one of my first, I think my first night, I remember somebody gave me a, a Schweppes ginger ale. How many ounces in a can? I don't know. Is it like 16 ounces? 12 ounces? All right. Yeah. You know, now it just seems like, yeah, talk about, you know, American portions. This is, it just, those 12 ounces seemed so much. And I couldn't finish it. I remember the Schweppes ginger ale, and I just felt like, ugh. And because, I, you know, the way kids are, they're, it's weird. I mean, as an adult, now I think somebody gives me a, a big drink that I can't finish, I'll just say I can't finish it. But I felt like I couldn't tell this adult, <laughs> I can't drink this entire can of Schweppes ginger ale. And I was, I was seriously trying to find like a potted plant or something I could toss it into. It was this weird thing in my mind. I felt like I had to be this obedient kid who ate and drank whatever was put in front of her. And some of that stuff, either it was just too much, the portions were too much, or the tastes were too unfamiliar. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was just kind of trying to pretend and not come off as rude. Um, and then we, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when we came, so we had these kinds of, I mean, ex our supermarket cart was like full of processed foods, right? Little Debbie's. Um, I did this, I did very serious research for writing this book. I, one day I went into a supermarket and I bought all the stuff that I ate in 1983. I got Entenmann's coffee cake, 
Little Debbie's snack cakes, uh, spam, jello, um, all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of got it all and I like, I, I ate it. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't quite a, a super size me experiment, but it, it felt like that. But I felt like I was doing serious research. You know, I had, I had to like go down that path. Uh, meanwhile, we had these friends, you know, friends of my father who were, you know, from, I mean, they were very chic, posh people and they were constantly trying to educate us you know, and they lived in a very fancy part of Cambridge. And, you know, so the other, so my parents were buying this cheap stuff because that's what they could afford. And also, frankly, because that's what they thought Western food was. And their friends, you know, were trying to say, oh, no, 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 you have to have like, you know, Nordic rye and, 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 and goose liver pate. I mean, literally, so in my first week, I was eating those things too, being taken to these farms. We have these suburbs around where I live, Lexington and Concord, where these farms and farm and that's the cool place. Who goes to a chain supermarket? So that's what we were also being told, that, you know, you have to go to that. So, and I was eating in all these restaurants around Harvard Square, which is, you know, very close to where our apartment was. So through these friends who had a lot more money and could take, and, and they kind of adopted me because this couple, they didn't have any children. So I think I was their kind of, they wanted to mold me into a particular kind of American. So, you know, I was like, you know, I had, what a cappuccino tastes like, went to this cafe that, uh, called Pamplona, where I had a sandwich called a medianoche. I had the, all, I had sushi. I had paella, you know, like all these things, which is another form of, you know what, but, but all the things I'm listing, it's a particular taste of a particular class of white collar professional white American who lived in Cambridge at the time, you know, and they were very, they were sophisticated, educated people. They tried to teach my parents about wine for years, the right kind, the right glasses, and my parents just never got into it. So, <laughs> so at the end of the day, we went back to those other things, and back in those days in the 80s, there were not many Indian grocery stores. There were none in Cambridge, and first year we didn't own a car. So we couldn't drive to the suburbs where many of the South Asian community lived back then. So my mom didn't actually have any spices to cook with other than what she could find in supermarkets, like those Durkee, um, you know what Durkee is? It's a brand of spices, you know? And so she found like a little cinnamon, maybe a little bit of turmeric, but she couldn't have access to the whole thing. So she was kind of, trying to improvise some of the stuff that she used to cook in India with very limited array of spices. And then she was trying to cook Western food with based on our ideas. And she often, she used to get better homes and gardens in which there were ads for making things. Often there were like Bisquick and Campbell's. So I, yeah, the first couple of years, I grew up eating a lot of things that we thought were very American. There were various sort of things made with Bisquick and um, I think Campbell's cream of chicken and mushroom, Kraft cheddar. Yes, that was the palate. And, and, and this friend desperately trying to give me a more kind of upscale taste. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was tasting all those things, but my parents, you know, didn't, didn't take to that. Yeah. 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 So English is your third language. Yes. So you write that it 
flowered into the language of your intellect while it continued to keep a respectful distance from the language of your emotion. Um, in a moving passage, you tell us about working briefly as a court interpreter for deportation cases. Could you read from that section? Um, um, so this is a section of when I was in an undergraduate. When I, was, I, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, and I had a work-study job all four years when I was in college. And then sometimes I would also take extra jobs outside of that so to make extra money. And one of the jobs I picked up for a year and a half was as an interpreter. And this is a section about being an interpreter. Throughout my undergraduate years, I always held down a variety of work-study jobs on campus. Occasionally, I needed to look outside the college for opportunities to make a little extra income so I could pay for textbooks, late-night snacks, and discounted clothes from Filene's basement. One day, I saw a flyer advertising a job for freelance translators and interpreters. One of the languages the flyer listed was Bengali. I'd never imagined my mother tongue could lead me to a job in Boston. A few weeks after I sent in my resume, I learned that I was selected for the position. Almost all of my freelance assignments involve deportation cases. My experience as an interpreter could be summarized as this. I stood in Boston courts and told Bangladeshi immigrants that they were to be deported. The court officials instructed me to repeat what was being said by each party during the proceedings and not add any of my own opinions. I was not to engage in side discussions with the defendants. I listened to what the lawyers and judges said in English and repeated it to the Bangladeshi men as accurately and concisely as I could. The men usually spoke to me in rural dialects of Bengali. Our, share, our shared mother tongue made the disparity of our circumstances amply clear. I was a Hindu Bengali from Calcutta who spoke with the accent of an upper middle class educated woman. I spoke what was standard Bengali in Calcutta, the way radio broadcasters who read Bengali news during the 1970s spoke. In the courtroom, I was dressed in American clothes, speaking American English that had been further honed at an Ivy League campus. I was light-skinned enough to be mistaken for white. The defendants were Muslim Bangladeshis, often from the rural areas of their country. They spoke Bengali with a regional accent, the way someone from a village with little access to formal education in any language speaks. They were sometimes dressed in orange. They were invariably much darker in color than me. No one would mistake them for white in America. If I was the model minority, the young immigrant who had made it, they were the unwanted minority, the immigrants who caused trouble. They were the problem, the reason why immigration is bad for America. I was the solution, the reason why immigration is good for America. Did we follow the court's instructions? Not always. The men who were unable to speak English often slipped in some questions for my ears only. What are they saying, sister? What is going on? Is there any way you can help me? 
What should I say? Please tell me what to say and I will say it, sister. My answers were brief, spoken almost coldly. I had to slip them in while I was relaying the official utterances of the judges and lawyers. If I spoke for too long, or if I showed any emotions, then the court would know I was not following the rules. Don't ask me these questions, brother. I'm not supposed to speak to you directly. I don't know how to help you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please ask your lawyer to help you. I cannot answer your questions. I'm sorry, brother. I recall a particular deportation case especially well. When the judge finally handed down the verdict, I had to tell two men, men who spoke the same language I spoke, who came from the same part of the world where my grandparents had been born, who knew how to eat fish curry and rice with their fingers as I did, how ripe jackfruits smell in the hottest months of summer, and how green guavas taste with a little sprinkling of black salt, how day can turn into night within minutes when a Kalboishaki storm descends upon Bengal, that they were to be deported. The truth is, I do not know the exact Bengali equivalent for deportation. I had no call to learn the word in Calcutta. I turned to the defendants and spoke in the politest Bengali I could muster, as if we were conversing about poetry over a cup of Darjeeling tea. Brothers, these gentlemen are requesting you to please take your leave from here. Their expressions clearly betrayed a rudimentary grasp of English. They had guessed the verdict even before I started addressing them in Bengali. Yet I felt the need to use our mother tongue with great care and eloquence. The English of the courtroom was bureaucratic, lacking in beauty and heart. Their English told the truth, but my Bengali told it slant. A few weeks later, I received a small check in the mail as payment for my work. I never took a freelance job with that company again. It was time for me to find other ways of augmenting my student income. Bangladeshi migrants are a common sight in the gated communities that have sprung up in the Delhi suburbs such as Gurgaon and Noida. Many of these migrants work as maids in the homes of middle-class Indians, including Bengalis. Some of these Bangladeshis are Hindus. Bangladesh, a Muslim-majority nation, continues to be home to a sizable Hindu minority population. Nonetheless, the Hindu Bengalis of India see these migrants, who speak their language and worship their gods, as inferior. They're illegal immigrants. They do not have the same rights as Indian citizens. They're poor, they are the underclass, they live in slums. They exist to keep the floors of the high-rise apartments sparkling and wash the newly affluent classes dirty dishes. Muslim Bangladeshis are treated with even greater suspicion. They are the familiar stranger in the same way Mexicans are familiar strangers in the United States. They speak with an inferior, regional accent that belong to the minority religious community of India. In the eyes of some Hindu Bengalis, their religion trumps their ethno-linguistic identity. Is she Bengali or is she Muslim? That is the unspoken question hovering in the air. I have heard this question whispered and shouted out loud since I was a child living on Dover Lane. Is she Bengali or is she Muslim? Is he Bengali or is he Muslim? The answer is predestined. They have to be one or the other. 
They cannot be both. Versions of this very question can be heard all over Europe and America today. They have to be one or the other. They cannot be both. In that courtroom, I was both. The men whose Bengali I Englished were both. I was American and Bengali. They were Bangladeshi and Bengali. I was Hindu and Bengali. They were Muslim and Bengali. I was a resident alien and Bengali. They were undocumented and Bengali. I had skin light enough to pass and was Bengali. They had skin so dark that they could never pass and were Bengali. The court saw me as a solution to their linguistic problems. The court saw them as the ones who caused a problem. I received payment in US dollars for the part I played in court. They were deported out of the country. Thank you. In that last section, there's um, a way that you speak to and really create the sense of there not being enough room for multiple identities. You can't be both at the same time. Um, say more about this and kind of the versions of that that you see happening right now. You say the versions of this question are being posed here and in Europe. Um, well, in the section that I read, I, I begin in, in, well, in the country of my birth, which is where there is now, even more than ever, um, I think less space for multiple identities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Indians of my generation who were born, as I said, before liberalization, you know, we are really sort of the first generation born after independence. Our parents were born um, before independence. Um, there was a kind of a cliche about the nation and we quite took it to heart. I was taught this in school and this was the cliche. This was almost like our, our motto or our tagline if we knew that there were words called tagline back then. Unity and diversity, right? Um, and, and that was something that I had really grown up with, but it has changed now in India. Um, that notion of unity and diversity, that that is our strength, that's what marks us as different even from our near neighbors in, in the subcontinent. Um, it's come under a lot of pressure, right? So for instance, this whole idea that, you know, if you belong to the the minority religious group, which in India, among others, you know, Muslims are a minority religious group, as are Sikhs and Christians and Jains and Buddhists and so forth, right? Hindus, like me, I'm a Hindu, I belong to the majority religious group, right? Uh, my husband is a Sikh, so he belongs to a minority religious group. So, um, so he can, in a way, say, you know, and that's why my, my story is very specific. I should have, uh, I, I guess I should also tell you that you know, I wanted to, I think sometimes when you want to talk about very general big things, the way you tell the story is by, by actually talking about very specific small stories. You know, this is what I tried to do with this book. I'm telling you a very specific small story of one part of one life, right? But hopefully, you, you know, that, that this allows us to think about big things. And one of the things, you know, here, I once lived as a majority. I lived as part of the elite, right? I didn't know that because that's what elitism feels like. 
It's a very light coat on your shoulder. You don't even know you wear it, right? Did I think of myself as belonging to the majority religion of India when I lived in India? Of course not. It's only when I came to the US did I think of it. No one who belongs to the majority group of anything, I would bet, <laughs> thinks of that until it is in some way pointed out to them or until their circumstances change and they become a minority somewhere. And, and the reason I'm telling you this is because I'm suddenly thinking of my husband who's, who's a, a, a Sikh who would say he in his entire life, because Sikhs are a minority, he would say even in India, you know, he was never, he has never enjoyed what it feels like to be part of the majority, you know, to be at such perfect ease. So my Indianness has never been questioned in India. And in many ways, it won't, it is, I go to India at least two, three times a year because I'm Hindu. I'm an upper caste Hindu. And that's where I began saying, you know, but Muslims in India today are having that, their, their, Indianness questioned, right? Their loyalty to the nation sometimes. And that's the whole kind of, are you Bengali or are you Muslim? Of course, it's a stupid question, right? Because these, that's a category error. It's like asking somebody, are you French or are you Catholic? Um, are you um, Spanish or are you a Jew, right? I'm using those, those religions and those nationalities on purpose because um, you can see that where those tensions lie. Um, so I begin there because that two-ness, being, being both, why not both, you can be even multiple more than that, um, is increasingly under pressure in India. And I think that it is, of course, under pressure in certain ways. As I said, that question is being asked out loud all over America and Europe, um, particularly when it comes to, um, in this case, I think religion. Right? And, and because race and religion is intertwined mm -hmm. in the US, has been intertwined since the founding of this country, right? In sort of more academic circles, we say religion is racialized and race is religionized, right? And that's been always the, the history of this country. So it's not a new phenomenon, but we're seeing it all over again in new ways, mm -hmm. right? You, you speak about the collapsing pluralism in India right now, and there's a psychoanalyst named Salman Akhtar who's written a lot about how immigration trauma, um, particularly among Hindu Indians, immigration when they come here, and exactly the transition you're talking about, about going from majority to minority status, has resulted in a sort of trauma that is generating a lot of support for Hindu nationalism back in India as a kind of a coping mechanism. Absolutely. I mean, um, um, this takes us to the discussion of the, the link between diaspora and sending countries, right? That... Um, in, certainly in India, a lot of kind of, you know, uh, whether it's Hindu nationalism, but even when it was the Khalistan movement in Punjab, you know, a lot of the, the support comes from the diaspora. The support come, and not just support, let's, let's put a finer point to it, financial support. It's not about just sitting in, in Chicago or Houston or Boston or San Francisco and saying, yay, I support this. It's, it's the direct sending of money that supports certain kinds of political agendas and, you know, um, 
social movements and so forth, um, there are very direct links between the diaspora and uh, not just the US diaspora, in, in um, UK too, and what's going on in um, India. And which is, by the way, a kind of an interesting, for people who are interested in thinking about politics, you know, a country that doesn't allow dual citizenship because it doesn't want its electoral politics to be in any way shaped by those overseas Indians, right? That's, that's the reason. It, it's, it's not, you know, dual citizenship is so far off, it's really never gonna pass in India, and part of it is fear of electoral politics being shaped by people getting votes who live outside. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.